Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring Starship Sofa and Far-Fetched Fables, everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Tales to Terrify. As you know, this is usually the time that I share about some news or some thoughts on something, but actually I have just about nothing. While I'm on the topic of nothing, and just before we dive into the stories, do you remember with the frequency that I begged you for money? I felt like it was pretty much constantly. There were times that were financially dire, but Tony took the district to Patreon and to Acast that has insulated us from full-blown money panics. Hopefully, I never have to come back to you with desperation again, but I wanted to take a moment to specifically thank the Tales to Terrify listeners who support the District of Wonders on Patreon. Because of you, I don't have to get on my knees and hold out my bowl begging for alms. Thank you for that. If you're not a Patreon member, I'd encourage you to do so. It helps us, as we say, keep the lights on, but also will help Tony grow the District of Wonders as well. Our current goal is to pay our narrators, and we're 60% of the way there. Actually, let me sidebar for a moment. I listen to a good number of other podcasts, Freakonomics, Decode DC, This American Life, Radiolab, and they always use the, for the cost of one cup of coffee a month, or something similar. And I always thought that was some sort of hokey catchphrase thing that fundraisers used. Well, here I go. They're all right. If every single Tales of the Terrify listener... Forget about our sister podcast. Joined the district's Patreon at the lower tier, $1 a month. We'd blow through that goal, and I'd bet the other one after it as well. And it helped me from having to ever beg you for money. Let's hear some stories. Charles Vincent DeVette, born in 1911, was a U.S. author, mostly of short stories, of which he wrote over 50 for science fiction magazines, beginning with The Unexpected Weapon for Amazing in September of 1950. In his first sci-fi novel, Cosmic Checkmate, with Catherine McLean, an Earthman is sent to investigate a hostile planet whose inhabitants' social advancement depends on proficiency at the national chess-like game, and must himself become involved in a desperate tournament. His second novel, Special Feature, rather flatly depicts media involvement in the filming of the depredations of a cat-like alien monster in St. Louis. After some years of silence, DeVette becomes active once again in the late 1980s for a short while. He died in 1997. Let's take a moment and listen with me to Charles DeVette's There Is a Reaper. (laughs) 
The amber-brown of the liquor disguised the poison it held, and I watched with a smile on my lips as he drank it. There was no pity in my heart for him. He was a jackal in the jungle of life, and I... I was one of the carnivores. It is the lot of the jackals of life to be devoured by the carnivore. Suddenly, the contented look on his face froze into a startled stillness. I knew he was feeling the first savage twinge of the agony that was to come. He turned his head and looked at me, and I saw suddenly that he knew what I had done. <coughs> you murderer! He cursed me, and then his body arched in the middle and his voice choked off deep in his throat. For a short minute he sat, tense, his body stiffened by the agony that rode it, unable to move a muscle. I watched the torment in his eyes build up into a crescendo of pain until the suffering became so great that it filmed his eyes, and I knew that, though he still stared directly at me, he no longer saw me. Then, as suddenly as the spasm had come, the starch went out of his body and his back slid slowly down the chair edge. He landed heavily with his head resting limply against the seat of the chair. His right leg doubled up in kind of a jerk before he was still. I knew the time had come. Where are you? I asked. This moment had cost me $60,000. Three weeks ago, the best doctors in the state had given me a month to live, and with $7 million in the bank, I couldn't buy a minute more. I accepted the doctor's decision philosophically, like the gambler that I am, but I had a plan, one which necessity had never forced me to use until now. Several years ago, before I had read an article about the medicine men of a certain tribe of aborigines living in the jungle at the source of the Amazon River, they had discovered a process in which the juice of a certain bush, known only to them, could be used to poison a man. Anyone subjected to this poison died, but for a few minutes after the life left his body, the medicine men could still converse with him. The subject, though ostensibly and actually dead, answered the medicine men's every question. This was their primitive, though reportedly effective, method of catching glimpses of what lay in the world of death. I had conceived my idea at the time I read the article, but I had never had the need to use it, until the doctors gave me a month to live. Then I spent my $60,000, and three weeks later I held in my hands a small bottle of the witch doctor's fluid. The next step was to secure my victim, my collaborator, I preferred to call him. The man I chose was a nobody, a homeless, friendless, non-entity picked up off the street. He had once been an educated man, but now he was only a bum, and when he died, he'd never be missed. A perfect man for my experiment. I'm a rich man because I have a system. The system is simple. I never make a move until I know exactly where that move will lead me. My field of operations is the stock market. I spend money unstintingly to secure the information I need before I take each step. I hire the best investigators, bribe employees and persons in position to give me the information I want, and only when I'm as certain as humanly possible that I cannot be wrong do I move. And the system never fails. Seven million dollars in the bank is proof of that. Now, knowing that I could not live, I intended to make the system work for me one last time before I died. I'm a firm believer in the adage that any situation can be whipped, given prior knowledge of its coming, and, of course, its attendant circumstances. For a moment, he did not answer and I began to fear that my experiment had failed. Where are you? I repeated, louder and sharper this time. 
The small muscles about his eyes puckered with an unnormal tension while the rest of his face held its death frost. Slowly, slowly, unnaturally, as though energized by some hyper-rational power, his lips and tongue moved. The words he spoke were clear. I'm in a... Uh, tunnel, he said. It is lighted dimly, but there is nothing for me to see. Blue veins showed through the flesh of his cheeks like watermarks on translucent paper. He paused, and I urged, Go on. I am alone he said. The realities I knew no longer exist, and I am damp and cold. All about me is a sense of gloom and dejection. It is an apprehension, an emanation, so deep and real as to be almost a tangible thing. The walls to either side of me seem to be formed, not of substance, but rather of the soundless cries of melancholy of spirits I cannot see. I am waiting, waiting in the gloom for something which will come to me. The need to wait is an innate part of my being, and I have no thought of questioning it. His voice died again. What are you waiting for? I asked. I do not know, he said, his voice dreary with the despair of centuries of hopelessness. I only know that I must wait. That compulsion is greater than my strength to combat. The tone of his voice changed slightly. The tunnel about me is widening, and now the walls have receded into invisibility. The tunnel has become a plain, but the plain is as desolate, as forlorn and dreary as was the tunnel, and still I stand and wait. How long must this go on? He fell silent again, and I was about to prompt him with another question. I could not afford to let this time run out in long sentences. But abruptly the muscles about his eyes tightened, and subtly a new aspect replaced their hopeless dejection. Now they expressed a black, bottomless terror. For a moment, I marveled that so small a portion of a facial anatomy could express such horror. There's something coming toward me, he said. A beast of brutish foulness. Beast is too inadequate a term to describe it, but I know no words to tell its form. It is an intangible and evasive thing, but very real. And it is coming closer. It has no organs of sight as I know them, but I feel that it can see me. Or rather, that it is aware of me with a sense sharper than vision itself. It is very near now. Oh God, the malevolence, the hate... The potentiality of awful, fearsome destructiveness that is its very essence, and still I cannot move. The expression of terrified anticipation centered in his eyes lessened slightly, and was replaced instantly by its former deep, deep despair. I am no longer afraid, he said. Why? I interjected. Why? I was impatient to learn all that I could before the end came. Because, he paused, because it holds no threat for me. Somehow, someday, I understand, I know, that it too is seeking that for which I wait. Well, what is it doing now? I asked. It has stopped beside me, and we stand together, gazing across the stark, empty plain. Now, a second awful entity, with the same leashed virulence about it, moves up and stands at my other side. We all three wait, 
myself with a dark fear of this dismal universe, my unnatural companions with patient, malicious menace. Bits of... He faltered. Of... I can name it only Aura, go out from the beasts like an acid stream and touch me, and the hate and the venom chill my body like a wave of intense cold. Now there are others of the awful breed behind me. We stand, waiting, waiting for that which will come. What it is, I do not know. I could see the pallor of death creeping steadily into the last corners of his lips, and I knew that the end was not far away. Suddenly, I felt a black frustration built up within me. What are you waiting for? I screamed, the tenseness and the importance of this moment forcing me to lose the iron self-control upon which I have always prided myself. I knew that the answer held the secret of what I must know. If I could learn that, my experiment would not be in vain, and I could make whatever preparations were necessary for my own death. I had to know that answer. Think! Think! I pleaded. What are you waiting for? I do not know. The dreary despair in his eyes, sightless as they met mine, chilled me with a coldness that I felt in the marrow of my being. I do not know, he repeated. I... Yes, I do know. Abruptly, the plasmatic film cleared from his eyes, and I knew that for the first time since the poison struck, he was seeing me clearly. I sensed that this was the last moment before he left, for good. It had to be now. Tell me! I command you! I cried. What are you waiting for? His voice was quiet as he murmured softly, implacably, before he was gone. We are waiting, he said. For you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. That was Charles DeVette's There Is a Reaper, as read by Joe Samarco. Joe Samarco is U.S. born. He has a passion for audio engineering and voiceover work and has since he was a young child. His father was a DJ and always encouraged his growth in the field. 
He hopes to make a professional career out of voiceover work in the animation or video game industry. To date, he has voiced over 15 different short stories on Tales to Terrify and hopes to do many more. For any who are interested in reaching out to him, he is on LinkedIn and Facebook and will happily respond to any requests or messages. Thank you, Joe. Our second story of the night comes to us from Rachel DiMaggio. Rachel DiMaggio is a writer of dark fiction who lives near Boston, Massachusetts with her husband and two cats. She graduated summa cum laude with a B.A. in English and Literature from Southern New Hampshire University. Her fiction has been published in Rose Red Review. When she isn't writing, Rachel loves to cook. As a ginger, she can sometimes be spotted nibbling on the soles of the unlucky. Follow her on Twitter if you are either brave or have already lost your soul. Listen with me to Rachel DiMaggio's Piedra de las Moscas. The trip almost didn't happen. Sierra only went because she suddenly lost her job, her admittedly dead-end, boring job at the pretzel shop in the mall. Lucida's counselor went into early labor in the night, so she had to reschedule their meeting. And Marshall, the only one who actually owned a car, had been trying to scrape up money for a repair until his aunt breezed into town and took pity on him. He told Sierra it was the only good thing that came out of his trip to San Francisco. Sierra sat cross-legged in the middle seat of the van. She felt like a kid during the first week of summer break. Behind her loomed a wall of backpacks, sleeping bags, and pillows. In the front seat, Lucida was messing with the radio, and Marshall was hanging his arm out the window for the breeze. The blinding flash of sun on the pavement foretold an afternoon of blistering heat. She flipped through the Texas travel guide. It was decorated with blocks of Marshall's tidy handwriting in the margins and orderly stripes of yellow highlighting. There's a vintage soda shop nearby, she said. Maybe after we see these pillars, we can get dinner there. Lucida shrugged. It might be a long hike. Who knows if they'll even be open when we get back. Sierra didn't respond. Lucida didn't like to be pinned down by plans, and Marshall was too interested in the historical site to care about what they would do later. But this was a three-day trip, and Sierra wasn't going to waste most of it with a half-baked itinerary. She cast a guilty look at Marshall as she dog-eared the page. She flipped to the back of the book to study the map. Marshall had penciled in the name, Piedra de las Moscas. Of course he'd picked a place that was literally off the map. He'd printed a description of the site and folded it in, so now it was part of the travel guide. The historical notes were bland. A small band of conquistadors had discovered the stone formation, camped there for a single, uneventful night, and left. The priest who'd accompanied the conquistadors returned to the site four years later with another group of Spanish soldiers. They discovered the decomposing bodies of several of his former comrades. There were so many flies that the base of the pillar was black. The priest wrote that the conquistadors had fallen prey to the vicious devils of the plain, yet the lack of arrow and tomahawk wounds made that seem unlikely. The unnaturally slow decomposition was even more troubling. So the conquistadors named the stone pillar Piedra de las Moscas and gave it a wide berth ever after. The sun was at its most violent when they reached the state park. Marshall paid the fee for a night of camping and bought tickets to the Moscas Museum. As they pulled into the parking lot, Lucida groaned. Can you get your money back? This place is tiny. We'll be done in five minutes. It's part of the experience. Marshall set the emergency brake. You've been back in Texas for six months and you're still using an e-brake? Sierra teased. There is zero danger of rolling down a hill in this place. Marshall ignored her, and she wanted to take back the words. He'd been thrilled to be in San Francisco, 
so sure he'd get that curator job if he applied often enough. Spending cuts and parental pressure had brought him back. She was glad, but she didn't want to be. She slammed the van door harder than necessary. The building was a stout rectangle of bricks. Behind it, an expanse of dying grass rolled off the edge of the world. Off to the left, the pillar. The mirage made the shape waver like a figure moving closer. The cool interior of the museum restored her good spirits. A middle-aged man straightened out of his slouch behind the counter and greeted them. Sierra went to the restroom, a slight headache beginning behind her eyes. She swallowed a few Tylenol. She ran the cold faucet, but the water never got cold. Even underground, this place was hot. She wet a paper towel, then dabbed it against the back of her neck, praying the migraine wouldn't get a good grip. She regretted staring into the brightness of the mirage. She returned to find Lucida flicking through the travel pamphlets. Marshall spoke to the museum guide in a reverent tone as they looked down at a glass display case. Sierra joined them. Lying in the case was a skeleton. The stark bones were labeled Spanish Conquistador, circa 1648. The placard offered a careful description of the events Sierra had already learned about. Tight-lipped museum writers, afraid to even show a glimmer of excitement. They still don't know how these guys died? she asked. It was probably something like dysentery. It would have spread from one to the next, very quickly, the guide responded. But the priest thought they were murdered, she said. The guide nodded. He did. Marshall aimed a frustrated scowl at her over the guide's shoulder, but Sierra was too interested now to stop. What do you think happened? He wrote about scratches all over the bodies. You don't get that from dysentery, do you? The guide shrugged in a friendly way. It could have been a fever or even dehydration. People do some incredible things to themselves when they're out of their minds with thirst. Why wouldn't they have gone looking for water when they realized they were going to die? Marshall interrupted. We won't take up more of your time with speculating. He moved to the next case, where a few yellowed journal pages rested on a dark blue piece of fabric. Can you tell us about these? Sierra bought a Coke from the vending machine. Lucida joined her, and they went to the other end of the building. There were a few exhibits dedicated to the Lipin Apache tribe. Sierra studied the shield with its foreground of reddish dirt and its refreshing blue stream. The mountains in the background and the white sand met to create the shape of a buffalo. This place is going to be a dud, Lucida said. Get ready to sweat like never before and spend the evening looking at a dumb rock. Sierra winced to hear her own suspicions voiced so loudly. Come on. There's more to the park. There's a caldera, too. Lucida perked up. That's here? I brought my hiking boots. If we get bored at the Mosca's Rock, we can go hiking. Marshall won't mind. Sierra was last out the door. Just as she stepped outside, the guide said something. She turned back. What? I know why all the conquistadors stayed, even after the first man got sick, he said. He stared at her as if uncomfortable with the thought, rubbing one hand over his thin hair. It was loyalty that killed them. The gravel road gave out and became a dirt path, treacherous with ruts and deep potholes. Marshall guided the van carefully around the worst of it, but the jolting ride caused Sierra's head to ache. Her migraine was catching up to the painkillers. She took a bottle of water from the cooler and rolled the icy plastic against the back of her neck. Lucida twisted around in the front seat to talk to her. Did you see those souvenir magnets? We should get one before we leave. Didn't notice. Sierra said, each word like the striking of a gong in her skull.
Are you having one of your headaches? Lucida asked. Sierra loved her for that quick intuition. She shrugged, not wanting to mess up Marshall's plans. I'll do fine. Just waiting on some shade. That's not going to happen anytime soon, Marshall said. But we can head for the campsite first. No, you have to drive by the stone anyway, she argued. I'll just stay in the car. He frowned into the rearview mirror. If you're sure. It is on the route. Totally fine. Hand me those pretzels, Luce. She crunched a few of them, willing away the migraine. This would not be one of those two-day headaches. They parked off the side of the dirt road. A cut section of the dead grass led to the base of the stone. Weeds rose knee-high on either side. Lucida left the car, dug through the cooler for another Coke, and stooped to tie her sneakers. Sierra pulled a pillow from their stash and lay down on the seat. Marshall opened her door and leaned in. Are you sure it's okay? I can come back tomorrow. It's fine. I'll just close my eyes for a few minutes. She felt him hovering, but she stubbornly kept her eyes closed until he shut the door. She focused on keeping her stomach from crawling up her throat. The air conditioner struggled to keep up with the heat of the day, and she focused on the repetitive ticking. After a while, she sat up and killed the engine. Her head still felt as if too much light was getting in, but she no longer felt sick. She finished the water and had a few more pretzels. From the front window, she saw Lucida moving up the trail, her bright green top the only speck of vivid color anywhere. Even the sky seemed blanched by the heat. Sierra leaned across the front seat to put the pretzels back in the cardboard box with the other snacks. Lucida's handbag gaped open on the floorboards. Sierra glanced down automatically, then averted her eyes so she wasn't snooping. She got out and did a few yoga stretches. The more she breathed in the scent of baked dirt and drying grass, the better she felt. She was already following them up the trail when she realized what had seemed weird about Lucida's bag. Her prescription bottle, the one that was always poking out of a pocket or rolling around in a drawer, was empty. Sierra glanced up the trail at Lucida, but of course she couldn't tell by looking how Luce felt or what she might be thinking. The scars on Lucida's wrists proved that every day. She caught up with them at the stone. Marshall was taking a photograph of the built-up earth at the base. The red dirt hill was bare of weeds. Lucida had already inspected the pillar and retreated to a distance, leaning back on her elbows, sunglasses masking her expression. Sierra rubbed her temples. The grinding pain was nearly gone. The stone was one of those bizarrely formal structures that made Sierra feel that nature had overplayed its hand. It had made something that looked like art, using nothing but time and strange circumstance. She went around the side of the pillar opposite her friends, moving into the negligible shade. The snatches of wind faded. Her head throbbed, and it seemed like the stone was gravity itself, pulling her forehead against it. The stone was cooler than her skin. Piedra de las Moscas. The words ran together in her head. She saw them and heard them, and felt their shape beneath her fingers, the rigid stone spelling itself to her. When she opened her eyes again a second later, Marshall was still snapping photos. Can you step out of the frame? I want at least one good shot before the sun goes down, Marshall said. Gotta get some photos of these striations. Never seen them so fine. We'll all get photos with it before we go, anyway. Sure, she answered, and moved away with unsteady knees. They didn't have time to hike that evening. The camping spot they'd picked was on the ridge of the caldera, and it was farther away than the map made it look. The tent went together with minimal stress, 
although the flexible poles kept snapping together on Sierra's fingers. Lucida perched on the hood of the van, giving instructions. After they set up the tent, Marshall heated a skillet on the camp stove. Sierra watched as he scrambled eggs and fried Canadian bacon, trying not to be obvious with her admiration. Lucida made a sappy face at her, but didn't comment. The tent turned out to be a lot smaller than expected, so Marshall slept in the van. The crickets made their rusty chirps. Sierra couldn't sleep. Sierra was the first out of the tent in the morning. The heat made her dizzy when she stood. Marshall was sitting up in the front seat of the van, feet on the dash and guidebook in hand. She opened the cooler and took a bottle of water. Is Luz still asleep? Marshall asked. We better get moving if we want to hike the caldera today. Are you better? Yeah, I'm... totally fine, she said, smiling as she realized it was true. No two-day headache after all. Marshall returned her smile and seemed about to say something. Instead, he returned to his reading. She went back inside the tent and began rolling up her sleeping bag. He had been ready to try dating until he got the job offer, and when he'd come back, he had been too disappointed to even think of starting over with her. The arguments hadn't helped. But by the end of the trip, things would be repaired. They would have a new, fun experience to build on, instead of just a bunch of disagreements and failed plans. She changed into hiking clothes and folded her pajama tee. Lucida was facing away from her, sleeping under the sheet. She always slept curled into such a tight, unhappy ball. Luce, wake up. Time to go, she said. With a sigh, Lucida pushed the sheet off her head and sat up. Sierra's throat closed up in shock. The back of her white tank top was speckled with hundreds of tiny bloodstains. What happened? she demanded. Lucida rubbed the back of her neck and Sierra saw welts. Something's been biting me, Lucida said, sounding bewildered. Let me see. We have some itch cream in the van. Didn't you feel anything? Lucida shook her head pulling the back of her tank up. Sierra tried to keep calm, but the bites covered every inch of Lucida's back with feverish and sticky welts. Are you feeling okay? she asked. It doesn't hurt? It kind of burns. Sierra dug through her pack until she found a t-shirt. Here, switch. Lucida pulled it over her head, but she didn't get up. A few tears began to streak down her face. It's okay. I'll put that stuff on and you'll be fine. No, I won't. Sierra knelt down across from her. Is this because you're out of your meds? You opened my bag, she demanded. No, it was lying open. I just noticed the bottle was empty. Why didn't you tell us to wait until you got a refill? You know it doesn't take long for... I'm fine except for these bites. Lucida's tone was defiant. As long as this itching stops, I'll make it through the weekend. Sierra went to the van. Marshall started the engine. She got bitten in the night, Sierra said under her breath. Bitten? Yeah. Bug bites everywhere. So give her some patience today. I'm patient, he said in a disbelieving voice. Sierra found the first aid kit and got out the anti-itch cream. Stops itching caused by poison ivy, poison oak, and insect bites. Why do you think I'm not patient? He asked, eyes downcast. Should I have waited on that job? Is that why you say that? Whatever she was about to say, it suddenly didn't matter. 
From the tent, Lucida was running toward them, and she was making the worst sound in the world. The sound of someone watching the edges of the earth curling up in flames. Sierra dropped the cream as Lucida crashed into the side of the van. She held her hand up, and her palm was bloody. Her scream was hysterical and out of touch with the silent, sick feeling creeping through Sierra's bones. It was Sunday, and the museum was locked. Even the kiosk where they had bought the ticket was empty, except for a sign in the window. Sierra had Lucida's head in her lap, holding gauze against the wound on her back. Once they got on the highway, Sierra had calmed enough to realize that it wasn't as bad as it looked. She had a deep gouge in the back of her shoulder. It looked the same size and shape as the buckle on Lucida's belt. You must have leaned on it, Sierra said. I don't remember. I lost my balance. Will it be a bad scar? I don't think so, Sierra said. But she was thinking of the other scars, and the empty prescription bottle, and that horrified scream. Tell me where we're going, Marshall said, smacking the steering wheel. He pumped the brakes as a speed limit sign blinked past. They decided to spend the night at a cheap motel on the outskirts of town. They could hike the next day as long as Lucida felt up to it. Marshall stood out on the narrow balcony, his grip on the railing the only sign that he was deeply irritated and uncomfortable. Sierra moved from one familiar task to the next. She ran a bath for Lucida, then started the small coffee machine. A phone book with a water-stained cover sat on the nightstand, and she flipped through until she found a pizza place that would deliver. She ordered, then went to the bathroom door and knocked lightly. Come in, Lucida said. She was sitting facing the wall, pouring water over her shoulders. The slight force of the water peeled the skin from her back like tissue paper from a bloody gift. The bathwater was already pink. Waiting, waiting on the ER staff to get Lucida into a room. Waiting for Lucida's parents to arrive. Waiting for the doctors to find out what was wrong. Finally, they admitted they just didn't know. That it could be an allergic reaction to the bites. Sierra hadn't seen any stinging insects or biting flies during the camping trip, but she'd been in the grip of a migraine. They didn't suggest that Lucida had done it to herself. Three months passed. Sierra felt lonely in the apartment, but she held out on getting another roommate. Lucida's parents wanted her to have a few more counseling sessions before she moved back. Sierra knew it would show a lack of faith if she asked Luce to collect her things so someone new could move in. One evening, her phone rang just as she was on the way out for a run. Marshall sounded out of breath. Sierra? He was almost yelling into the phone, as if she was about to turn a corner out of sight. Yeah, what's the matter? She asked, pulling the door closed and turning the key. Okay, okay. I have to tell you something. What? The edges of the keys dug sharply into her fingers. Lucida's gone. She... They said it was out of nowhere. Sierra listened to his story. She didn't cry at first. She tied her sneakers tightly and ran down her sidewalk, past the convenience store where she and Lucida had made emergency stops for snacks and tampons, past the coffee shop where they'd studied last semester. She turned left beneath the oak trees. She ran faster, feeling dragged down by the dark shade on the sidewalks, ran harder until only the snap of her shoes on the pavement kept her anchored to the earth. Finally, she burst out from under the shade of the oak trees and into the sunlight so white-hot it made her eyes burn. So all-encompassing, it felt like she was levitating. Lucida and her parents had gone out for an early dinner. 
She hadn't eaten much, and she'd been quieter than usual. But other than that, everything had been normal. During dessert, she mentioned wanting to move back to the apartment with Sierra. Her mom and dad disagreed with each other on whether or not she was ready. But after only a few heated words, they went back to discussing their weekend plans. They got in the car at about 6 p.m. and headed home in rush hour traffic. Lucida's mom heard her say something under her breath, something about going back, and then she heard the handle click as the car door opened. She had twisted around in her seat in time to see Lucida tumble out of the car and turn to cross the highway. She only made it a few running steps before she was hit. Sierra hadn't been there, but she saw it in her imagination, over and over. Four months passed. Sierra had a roommate who dyed her hair dark brown and wore a lot of vintage rock t-shirts. When Sierra ordered pizza, she always had to ask what toppings her roommate liked. She just couldn't remember. At work, she sometimes forgot the roommate even existed. Late one night in February, the peel of her phone woke her up. The plastic case was ice cold, and she huddled back beneath the covers as she answered. It was Marshall, and he sounded panicked. What's wrong? she asked. I feel really off. Are you thinking about Luce? No, I mean, yes, all the time, but that's over. I think it's going to be my turn next, Sierra. It will. Wait, wait a second. Sierra got up and dug through the closet until she found an old fleece jacket. She pulled on her sneakers and went outside. Part of her wanted to let the roommate sleep. Another part, the primal part she couldn't touch with all her skepticism, didn't want to hear Marshall's terrified voice while she was in her own house. She didn't want to infect the place she slept. He was talking to himself under his breath, obviously trying to get a grip on his thoughts. Okay, so tell me what's going on. Are you safe? I don't think so, he said. Marshall, don't you dare do anything to yourself. I can't take that after. I don't want to kill myself, he said indignantly. I want to go back. Back? To the pillar. Sierra's throat felt tight. She'd been dreaming of that place for weeks, but she had blamed it on trauma. Why would you ever want to go back? I don't know. It doesn't make sense. I just... I feel like I have to. He didn't sound like the analytical and collected person she knew. Okay, I'm coming over. I'll be there in an hour. He was waiting on the sidewalk when she parked at the apartment. She wished she'd taken him up on the offer to visit when he'd first moved in. He hugged her, and it was like he feared being flung off the earth, and she was the only anchored thing to hold on to. Okay, she said sharply, trying not to soak in any more of his fear. What's wrong? He looked miserably at her. I took part of it. There were some broken pieces at the base of the pillar. I took one. She couldn't help it, she scoffed. <laughs> you wouldn't do that, she said. You yelled at me that time I picked a state flower. You're a historian. You would never take something from a site. I don't remember doing it, but I found it on my desk. I'll show you. She followed him inside and they took the elevator to the top floor. Stacks of soup cans teetered near the overflowing trash can. Unopened envelopes were scattered on the countertop. She sidestepped a stack of books on historical sites and museums in the southwest and waited for him to open the bedroom door. When he did, a rush of dry air blasted her face. It felt ten degrees warmer than the rest of the house. 
The lamp was on at his desk. He'd been in the middle of writing, papers ringed by a semicircle of books and sticky notes and pens. Raw white light surrounded a chunk of red rock pinning the paper to the desk. Red dust surrounded it, as if the rock had fallen from overhead. It was the size of a brick, an obscene paperweight. It was just here, he said. I kept waking up at night to look at it. I haven't touched it because I can just feel it trying to make me go back. You know that sounds crazy, she answered, trying to appeal to whatever logic was left. We had a bad experience. You're just reliving it. There's nothing special about that rock. You probably blocked out taking it, and you put it there in your sleep. He shook his head and kept pacing in a circle. Sweat began to tickle her hairline. That lamp was giving off a fierce heat. She moved to turn it off. Leave it. I'll open the window. She tugged at the scarf she looped around her throat and watched him fumble to unlatch the window that led to the tiny balcony. The metal bars around the square ledge looked more like prison bars than decorative fence. I know why she did it. A headache struck her temples like a hammer. She put her hands on the desk and leaned against it. Her head dipped lower, and she felt slight relief. The heat seemed to be radiating off the rock. Nobody can know that, she said. He pulled her arm so she would turn around. She cringed at the terrified look in his eyes. Her parents said she was talking about going back. She needed to go back. She wasn't trying to kill herself. She was taking the most direct route to where she wanted to go. Sierra couldn't think of anything to say. I need to go back, he said, suddenly matter-of-fact and calm. You'll meet me there? His fingers crushed deeper into her arm as he turned his head slightly toward the window. He moved like someone half-asleep. He let go, and she realized too late that the window faced west, and it was six stories to the ground. She instinctively grabbed for him, catching the back of his hooded sweater. But she couldn't stop him. He sprinted through the open window and leaped over the rail. The fall was silent. She rushed to the balcony and stared down. Beneath Marshall's head, a dark shape of blood grew by inches, glistening in the orange glow of the streetlights. She heard a raindrop hit the balcony and looked up in disbelief at the clear sky. She looked down at the concrete and saw drops of blood. She remembered a tearing pain as Marshall's sweater ripped from her grasp and held up her hand to see her fingernails had ripped deep into the flesh. Maybe this mess would untangle itself. The explanation would appear and shake everything into order again. She got through another month of talking to her therapist about her guilt, her rage at her friends for leaving her behind, for going crazy and trying to take her along. Her headaches had been worse since Marshall's death. She found that if she went to sleep with her forehead touching the cool wallpaper, it was a little better. One night she understood that it was the west wall she was leaning on for relief, and she got up at 2 a.m., to switch the dresser and the bed to opposite sides of the room. She didn't sleep well after that. Nothing dulled the headaches like that one wall. But she refused to move the bed back. Each morning she woke with flickering images of that rock in her mind. Work became her escape, the place where she was surrounded by people who would stop her if she started behaving oddly. If she tried to walk into traffic... Her roommate had moved out when the flies started coming in. Sierra covered the windows with tight plastic. They still appeared. Flies clustered together at the door and on the windowsills and died. If she forgot to cover a sandwich for a half an hour, she would find it encircled by their shiny, lifeless bodies. She didn't mention it to the therapist, imagining them to be unnerving hallucinations and nothing more. She wouldn't go back to that place, 
She'd just keep sweeping the flies out the back door, scooping them up in paper towels, flushing them down the drains when they landed dead in the sink. Then one weekend the headaches became so bad she couldn't sleep at all, couldn't eat without vomiting, couldn't stand the light from the weakest lamp in the apartment. She began to hear it as a whisper, that thought she had kept out all this time. The stone will stop it. I have to go back. The stone will stop it. She got in the car, intending to see the stone again. Maybe rub the dust of that place into her skin. Maybe spend a night there and see if that was enough. Sierra considered calling her parents, but didn't. They would find such a pilgrimage morbid. She gripped the steering wheel so tightly, her palms ached, long before she got out of town. The highway became less busy until she was the only car in sight. Trees shrank from live oaks to shrubs to nothing. And then it was just her and the dust and the sun rising toward its midday position. The sunglasses, though useless against the glare of the light, provided a small benefit as she paid at the ranger station. They hid her bloodshot eyes. The ranger took her money and she drove on. The road was eerily familiar as if she'd seen it a thousand times, and not just once before. Red dust clouded and swirled behind her. It blotted out the names and faces of every living person she knew. Soon she could only think, Luce, Marshall, are you waiting? Did you make it here before me? Finally, she saw it. The pillar rose, terrifying and huge, from the empty red ground. Flickering black figures gambled at its base. They moved in supplication, revel, or torment. It was impossible to tell which emotion contorted them. She stopped and stared. The migraine was an arrow launched in her eye. It was better when she gazed at the rock. She took off the sunglasses and looked up at the top of the rock where the sun burned the eye of an impassive god watching the rock and the dead who circled it like flies. She would have to drive fast. She rubbed the tears from her eyes, and then she drove forward until the red stone filled her vision. That was Rachel DiMaggio's Piedra de las Moscas, as read by Heather Thomas. Heather Thomas is a jewelry expert by day and master of none by night, dabbling in costuming, art, music, writing, and narration. She is a lifelong fan of all things horror and enjoys reading stories and novels to her friends and family when they let her. She lives in Denver, Colorado, with her husband and her spoiled, rotten cat, Oni. Thank you, Heather. That'll be our show for the evening, Children of the Night. Visit our Patreon page in the links below and don't forget to like us on Apple Podcasts. Our show is produced by our editors Scott Silk, Seth Williams, and Drew Sebastini. Website designed by Josh Lightsey. And theme music by Diane Severson. Tales to Terrify is distributed under Creative Commons Attribution and Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 License. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network. Dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.
If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.